You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. And I'm Andy Fleming. And joining us from Portland, Oregon, is journalist Jason Wilson. Thanks for joining us, Jason. Thank you for having me once again. It's always a pleasure. How have things been? I think the last time we spoke to you was very early in the pandemic. I'm assuming everything went well? (laughs) It went well for a while, you know, while we were locked down. And then I think everyone fell prey to that great American weakness, a, a false sense of security. And so now we're looking at totals, even in Oregon where I am, which has been spared the worst of the pandemic, I think it's fair to say. We're looking at, you know, infection rates that are much higher than the previous peak. And, you know, if you look around the country as a whole, it looks like the first wave never really crested. There was a plateau for a while and now the whole country is on its way up again. And if you look at places like Texas, Arizona, Florida, there's a, there's really a looming catastrophe there. And, and it's as a result of state government, governors in particular, sort of politicizing this whole thing and, you know, really just turning it into a political football instead of a public health issue. So it's not the best place to ride out the pandemic, but, um, (laughs) you know, I'm just staying at home, wearing a mask 24-7 and hoping for the best. So also at the same time as all of that's going on, we've got this huge civil rights movement happening and as well as some uh, some bad actors looking to exploit the general chaos. You wrote a thing for Bellingcat, Quite recently, uh, I think the definitive take on the Boogaloo. Oh, that's very uh, nice of you to say so. There's been a lot of debate, though, about the, the Boogaloo boys and whether they're racist or not. And I was wondering if you could uh, come in and drop the gavel on it. Yeah, I think it's um, like any uh, sort of nascent social movement. It's It's kind of complicated but it's not that complicated i mean i think there are serious like like there are legitimately a number of people in this movement who are i suppose libertarian and libertarians of a universalist bent so in other words you know they're claiming that sort of right libertarian set of civil rights uh, the right free speech the right to free assembly um, the right to bear arms and they're saying that, that they're doing that on behalf of everyone, whatever race, creed, color, sex, sexual orientation. And, and no doubt there are some people in the movement who, who are genuinely of that mind. Unfortunately, there are no walls around this movement and there are people who are influential actors in this movement who I think are really doing neo-Nazi white supremacist entryism on this movement. And, and, you know, the, the whole Boogaloo term has a, a, a complicated history as well, came out of a, 
a firearms board on 4chan, which is not reflexively white nationalist, but is not necessarily looking to actively repel racist actors either. And I think that's that's sort of set the template for the movement. So there are people within this movement who are going to need to think about whether universalist right libertarianism is actually the bulwark against racism that they think it is, because there are people who are coasting on these memes who are really actually looking to a race war. And there have always been people using this terminology who have been looking to a race war. So that's that's the problem with this thing at the moment. It's it's too simplistic to say that this is simply a cover for, you know, white supremacy. Uh, it's not simply a front. Also, it's not a movement that's doing enough to, you know, ensure that racist actors aren't a, a part of it. And I think that there is a lot of naivety amongst the people who I think who think that they're doing the right thing. And, and, and sort of that discussion is almost beside the point because the movement has already inspired, you know, violent uh, acts of political violence from people who are loosely affiliated with it. So I don't think it's, it's a thing that anyone can claim that they have a handle on and, and that they have control on, control of rather. And though it's an insurrectionary anti-government movement that is not uh, insurrectionary and anti-government in, in the cause of liberation or equality it's in the cause of you know i should be able to have a machine gun and uh hopefully some people are going to reflect on that now but yeah it's 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 complicated it's it's a moving target yeah it's not it's not a movement that anyone should necessarily trust or that anyone should imagine is not directed at violent you know acts of political violence it absolutely is is it the case that most who participate or support this movement anticipate or look forward to some kind of civil war breaking out in the United States? I think that it's absolutely fair to say that almost everyone in this movement is talking about, memeing about, you know, however much they might like to think it's under three layers of irony. They're, They're talking about confrontations with the federal government. So, uh, and, and then, yeah, a lot of people like, like, like the boogaloo concept itself, the central concept of this movement is kind of euphemism or a way of talking about civil war. So yeah, absolutely. They're absolutely looking at, looking forward to or looking to participate in the collapse of the United States and what they're wanting to bring about in the wake of that collapse again is not a sort of regime of, uh, of, of equality and social justice, what they're looking at is what, what, what they're looking for rather is a situation in which government can no longer restrain white men in, you know, having whatever firearms they want to have, in not paying any taxes, in not making, making any kind of contribution. So they're really, their con- conflict with the state or their beef with the state is really about what they see as the state's prohibitions on, on, on maximum individual freedom. It's it's not about the state's role in persecuting minority groups or, or marginal groups. It's about them and their freedoms and their capacity to own a machine gun or to, to, to drive unlicensed. You know, it's it's the classic kind of libertarian thing. Now, they will say that they're supportive of the George, George Floyd protests, or some of them will, and, and will say that they're not racists and that, that they don't think that any of the constitutional rights that are spelled out in the Bill of Rights in the United States are, you know, racially exclusive and that they're going out there and participating in good faith in these protests against police brutality. But the end state that they're looking for is not is not the end state that Black Lives Matter 
protesters are looking for, I don't think. They just don't want the state to intervene in in their rights to own guns, say whatever they want, and really have no obligations to the society around them. I mean, this is a long kind of discussion, I suppose, in, in political theory and associated debates, and we, we could probably get unnecessarily bogged down in it. But these are not, they might, some of them might be anti-racist to the extent that they're making universalist libertarian claims, but they're not necessarily any fascist. And I think that we're seeing that play out in a lot of these Facebook groups. And I've got some reporting coming out on that soon, but um, I don't know what, what, what you, you guys make of this. I guess one thing is uh, I feel like I'd been seeing these guys on social media for a while before it was, you know, before it had a name, these K, K is the, the board on 4chan that they, they emerged from the get the gun board. And it's like, I guess the thing that occurred to me is to go the boards that you know the alt right emerged from on 4chan are just one click away. It's not like it was a um, you know they were in completely separate spaces. Of course, you're going to have crossover. I guess the the thing that I think of is you know we've talked over the years about how people dress up these ideas with irony to sort of uh, evade responsibility for them and you can tick this one off on your yeah nah pass around bingo if you're playing at home. But it, it feels like something has changed when. Normally, that stops when bodies start dropping, which is what's happened with the boogaloo thing, right? Yeah, I, I guess so. I mean, I, I think that, you know, I think that, that, that there is this repeated appeal to the left from the far right. You know, and I, I don't, I'm not a political sociologist or whatever. I, I, I don't know the, the kind of numbers here. I don't have a great grasp of the, the, the numbers here because it's all, all of the evidence we have is, is really on social media. But I, I suppose, you know, this appeal from, from the far right to the left is because that, as we've seen in the last month or so here in the United States, you know, the far right doesn't really have the numbers. I mean, any given protest in a major city, uh, any given Black Lives Matter protest in a major city in the United States in the last month has been probably bigger than every spontaneous Trump rally since 2016 combined. So there's there's no mystery about why they feel this need to, to sort of reach out to the left and to, to, to try to convince people that they're on their side. But as I said, their goals are very different. And again, there are a lot of people who are running these pages, you know, even very influential Facebook pages that are making very poorly concealed references to, to fascist politics and to, to contemporary fascist aesthetics. I mean, there's no reason to take anything that these guys are saying at face value. You know, on the right, uh, I, I know Attorney General William Barr this week tried to put uh, anti-fascists and anarchists and boogaloo boys together in this category of anti-government extremism. The question is, why are you against the government? <laughs> And these guys are against the government for similar reasons to the for, for similar reasons to Tim McVeigh. Um, you know, they're against the government because they feel like I think that the government is no longer an unconditional supporter of white supremacy or the prerogatives of settlers, and at least to a minimal extent, has to take other values into consideration when they're administering criminal justice or land management you know they have to pay at least pay lip service to to other values besides those of white supremacy and that's what's really getting these guys going i would say that it's possible that there are people within this movement who are 
aggrieved about police brutality and can't, for whatever reason, bring themselves to reach out to progressive political movements and, and, and you know, have lost faith in President Trump but don't feel ready yet to think of themselves as being on the left. That doesn't mean that you have to engage with the movement, you know, as opposed to individuals. The movement is not to be trusted, ultimately, I think. What then do you make of the fact that uh, the Donald retweeted a video by supporters in which one was uh, shown uh, shouting white power? Well, I, I, yeah, the problem with President Trump is that, you know, if if you fixate on a particular odd move, um, you know, you can get bogged down in deciding whether it's just a matter of incompetence and ignorance or a deliberate effort to promote uh, far-right extremism. I don't think that's particularly productive. I think if you, but, but I think that if you look at the big picture, this is a president who is increasingly embracing far-right extremism as a way really of gluing his base on. I don't think that his base as it stands is going to be sufficient to win an election or even make it close enough to plausibly, you know, steal. <laughs> but I think that it's kind of all he's got. And while that base is shrinking, you know, there are ways for him to put a floor on it, to draw the people who are still there closer to him, to kind of capitalise on the the extremisms that have developed amongst the people who are still defending him, come what may. And I think that open white supremacy is no longer a thing that Donald Trump feels like he needs to shy away from. Um, I'm, you know, whether or not we think he's actively promoting it, it's clearly not something that he feels like he can't retweet. I think that he's sent all kinds of signals to, to, to QAnon, and I suspect Cam knows knows more about the details of that than me, but I, I, I know that he's He's done that repeatedly. He's certainly given a green light to armed vigilantes um, in recent weeks, you know, the people who might like to go out into the streets of a small town with a bunch of their buddies in fatigues with semi-automatic weapons. Um, That's happened in cities and towns around the country, and President Trump has effectively given that the nod. In in the face of political troubles, he's not pivoting to the centre. He's doubling down, I think, on the on the base he has, which is big. It's pretty clear that whatever he does, at least at the very least, a third of the country is just not gonna not gonna be bothered. You know, they're gonna stick with him. And so he's you know, I don't know what he thinks is gonna happen in November. Maybe he thinks he's gonna lose. I don't know, but he, he wants to either way he wants to keep a hold of those people. And I think that's um signalling that he understands them, that he shares their concerns, that he's prepared to give them a dopamine rush by retweeting them. That that that's what he's up to. And I don't think it's a strategy it's an election winning strategy, but it might be a uh, it might be a strategy that is directed to a, a different purpose. You're listening to 3CR, 8.55am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital on your DAB radio. We're currently talking to journalist Jason Wilson about the far right and Trump in the midst of all this, we've had the Antifa scare, Antifa behind, under every bed and behind every corner. The the Trump campaign were running Facebook ads. They ran 88 
Facebook ads with uh, the red triangle logo uh, warning against Antifa. It just seems like more gaslighting, right? Yeah, it does. And it, it also seems like an effort to send people who are maybe opposed to tri- President Trump down various rabbit holes. Mm. Even if it is a conscious effort. I mean, it, it it may just be a matter of staggering ignorance, but I don't even think it's worth us passing the difference there. I think that um, the effect is the same. The effect is that it sends out a signal to, you know, the street fascists that are a part uh, of the president's base of support. That Put it this way, sending coded sim- symbols in the form of you know, Holocaust-era markings for prisoners is possible totally. I mean, there are Nazis in Trump's orbit, but it's kind of superfluous. I mean, the president gets on Twitter and says that these people should be beaten up and that that, that the radical left or, or even journalists are the enemies of the people. I mean, he's he's not in need of secret codes at this point, although it's possible that he was sending one out gratuitously. I mean, the point is that he is... Absolutely trying to foment uh, civil conflict in the United States. He's absolutely hoping that that there will be violence in the streets. He's always profited from dividing the country and, and claiming enough of a share from that division to sort of triumph electorally to, to keep his polls looking viable. And, and that, and that's the main point. And, Look, I think the anti-far panic in particular is being promoted because President Trump is losing core constituencies. I, I mean, the biggest tell is that he's even Stevens with older people, people over 65 at the moment. Uh, and that's unprecedented in, in modern political history, that older people would, would be as inclined to vote for Democrats as Republicans. They've always been the most reliable conservative constituency. So that, that's the real thing. I mean, even amongst evangelicals uh, who are his most loyal constituency and who arguably were the people who got him over the line in 2016, his support is softening. He's losing support in every conceivable demographic. The Red Scare move was a, a lot more unnerving, I thought, a year ago. But the Donald Trump, the Trump administration, the Trump movement of 2020 you know, it looks extremely unconvincing when they're trying to to, to mobilise this stuff. It, it kind of seems a little pathetic. It, it seemed uh, m- more menacing a year ago, put it that way. I mean, it's a, it's a kind of last-ditch attempt, I think, to sort of, again, glue on the base, but also maybe get them to mobilise, um, you know, a, a slightly larger group of people. The difficulty is that, you know, the, the anti-racist movement, which has gone global, uh, in response to, uh, you know, police killing George Floyd. You know, President Trump, I think, made the mistake of associating himself with the police and, and, and vice versa. The police made the mistake of associating themselves with President Trump, or, or police unions did anyway. And, and so really when the president did that, he he sort of gave permission to for this to be an anti-Trump movement as well. And I, I don't know how you... You guys are seeing it from Australia, but it seems to me that part of the reason this went global was because as well as being an anti-racist movement, it was a kind of anti-Trump movement, and that was something that people around the world could agree 
agree on. I, I don't know. I mean, at least anti-US global hegemony with someone like Trump in charge. Is, 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 is that at least part of it, do you think? I think you're right. And also because I think for many outside of the United States, already possessed of a critique of US power, Trump presents as being one of its most vulgar expressions. And the killing of George Floyd was also conducted in a way that made it clear that in these circumstances, which have been reproduced countless times, police operate with seemingly complete impunity. And so it was so dramatic and so stark and so vivid, whatever truths it contained became kind of undeniable. And what's, what's um, I guess, interesting is that, as you um, said earlier, the numbers of people who've come out in opposition to police brutality in so many diverse locations indicate that what's been tapped into is a much, um, obviously, on the part of uh, black communities in the United States, but among many others, long-standing grievances that have uh, suddenly been allowed expression, both because of the nature of the, the killing, but because of the response by the state and police generally. Um, it's kind of given even more reason for people to really scream and shout. And obviously, the you know whether it's Australia or the UK or Brazil or France or anywhere else, the same kinds of structural issues are present. So, you know, it, it's a moment. Um, but what's remarkable about it is just how... Uh, as you said, you know, even those who would normally form part of his support base are being prepared to express some degree of qualified support for a movement that opposes racism and um, police brutality, precisely because it's been expressed in such stark fashion, or 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 at least sit it out, right? Like that, and that's that's going to be a big deal in November, I think. Maybe there are a bunch of people out there who are they're not going to march let alone by Democrat, but they're just looking at the protests, looking at the handling of coronavirus, you know, and just the reality principle is is just starting to really make itself felt. And uh, people are not, people may not be prepared to do anything beyond just kind of staying home on that, on that day in November, but that's, that's going to be enough. I mean, he can't afford to lose a single point, really. Biden's ahead in every swing state. I mean, I don't, I don't know how Trump claws back the advantage that Biden currently has. I don't know where new Trump voters come from. Um, it's, it, it seems to me that he's probably been shedding voters since the day he was elected and, and, lost the popular vote on that occasion anyway. So it's it's the question is what happens between November and January, I guess. That that's one that's preoccupying me a lot. And and also I suppose what it looks like in the next year or two as you know, Trump's not going anywhere. He's still gonna have a Twitter account. Maybe I mean, you know, maybe he'll get booted the day he loses, but um he's still gonna be around. He's still gonna have access to some kind of media channel. And what's he going to be saying about the validity of that election, even if he's only reaching a third or even a quarter of American adults? You know, that, 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 that could be a big problem. So we're not out of the woods yet, and I don't want to jinx anything, uh, that's for sure. <laughs> 
But I also feel like maybe, hopefully, casting an upward glance, uh, the, the, the wave has sort of broken, maybe. You know, and, and, and now it's about what damage has the, the tsunami kind of done? Is, is the damage able to be repaired? I, I, I kind of already feel like we're in that, in that phase. I, I, I think also that the Black Lives Matter movement was decisive there. Seeing that many people in the streets, seeing cities and towns around America that have rarely seen a protest in, in, in living memory, you know, having Black Lives Matter protests about the overreach from the right, about sending armed vigilantes into into little towns after phantom Antifa buses and, and seeing those armed vigilantes up against local people who are simply, you know, trying to make a, an entirely peaceful and, and pretty mild anti-racist statement. I think all of that has kind of revealed to people who might be even you know, reflexive conservatives, what this movement and what this moment is about. And yeah, like I said before, whether or not those people actually change their minds or just stay home, you know, either of those could be equally decisive. Uh, Well, we'll have to leave it there, Jason, but uh, we'll ask you a few more questions on the podcast, which people can find at 3cr.org.au slash yeahnahpasaram. If people want to find you, you're on Twitter at Jason underscore A underscore W, and I understand you've got some big stories coming. Yes, indeed. Always, always. But yeah, some stuff about the Boogaloo Boys, um, some stuff about a, a significant leak come from local, state and federal police forces in the United States. Some stuff about Australia, even, uh, and the far right in Australia. But yeah, all will be revealed in coming days, as they say. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's Voice of Dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. I was going to say, Jason, that I think the possibility of Trump uh, winning in November is partly predicated on the administration's ability to suppress the black vote. Obviously, they're, I assume they're doing their best to try and ensure that's the case. And as you said, also, even if Trump loses, there's the matter of the damage he's done to US institutions and the ways in which he's, his various appointments, that legacy is going to carry on for some years. So if uh, Biden wins, assuming they're, you know, he's willing to address these matters, it's not going to be um, at all straightforward. No, that's true. There is the chance that he'll win. And, you know, like I, I will say that I was I was always I, I think I've got stuff out on, on the record saying that I was, you know, showing that I was always saying that there was a chance that he would win. And now and just and that was just because the sense I had that he had a kind of momentum and, you know, a series of arguments that could be deployed against Hillary Clinton in particular of all the. The, the Democrat candidates really effectively. I, th- I I don't think the momentum is with him now, and I think he's uniquely ineffectual. I don't think that we're going to see 
an authoritarian government in the United States with Donald Trump at its head. Uh, but that, <laughs> that doesn't mean we're not going to see an authoritarian government. I mean, my worries are, as you say, that how much of the United States population now has been permanently radicalized and just been isolated in a bubble of conspiracy thinking and kind of cult of personality around Trump. I, I don't know, but it's probably tens of millions of people. That's not an easy problem to solve. I think the other big problem, which, you know, is something that I'm going to be looking to in my reporting from here on out, is that, you know, I think that the point that a lot of anti-fascists and others have always made about the danger of you know, far-right politics, is that it's inherently violent. It lapses into acts of terrorism, and those acts of terrorism inspire an authoritarian response. And, you know, whether that become that comes in the form of statute or, you know, police practices, that authoritarian response is never limited to the far-right, so that, that you have a kind of ratcheting up of authoritarianism as it's applied to any kind of radic- radical political movement. And so, I mean, I think that, that the, the classic example is the way in which domestic terror enhancements were applied to people, radical environmentalists who, you know, we can argue about what they did, but it was it was limited to property damage, pretty much arson and, you know, uh, uh, other kinds of attacks on property who were not comparable to, to Timothy McVeigh or any of the people in the 1990s who were, who, who carried out d- deadly acts of violence on people. I, I, I'm concerned going forward that we're going to, we're going to see a kind of counterterrorism response to far-right terrorism in the United States, as in, you know, a, a sort of a response analogous to the war on terror, but, but domesticated, that the stimulus, the reason, the excuse is that it is the far-right, but that that doesn't stop with the far-right. So you've got people arguing now that there should be a a way to designate domestic groups as, as, as terrorist organizations, which hasn't been possible before due to an understanding of what the First Amendment implies. You've got people saying that there should be statutes, uh, specific domestic terrorism statutes going beyond the statutes that apply to murder, arson, <laughs> bombing, and, and the terrorism enhancements that already exist. People who, who are saying that, that, that really anything short of a specific terrorism statute will be, is, is going to be insufficient and it's going to be, is going to mean that people don't get long enough sentences or that they are released into the community before they should be, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm concerned that there's a kind of looming climate catastrophe that is going to invite a radical response, not, you know, from the right. To some extent, but, but also from the, from the left. And I'm worried that a new terrorism statute is going to be an appealing way to, 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 to kind of shut that down. That's my other concern that, uh, far right terrorism will work in the way that it always has, which is to invite an authoritarian response from the state, which is then generalized to everyone who's outside a sort of arbitrary line when it comes to dissent. One thing I noticed recently, which uh, we're speaking on a slightly different level, but uh, just recently it was announced that um, the very popular subreddit, uh, the Donald, has been removed from the platform, but which was the headline, but at the same time they've also removed the uh, Chapo Trap House uh, subreddit as well, and it seems to be part of a general purge on the part of Reddit. Uh, to remove uh, all kinds of material, I think something like 2,000 
it was estimated uh, subreddits had been removed and employing, I guess, a kind of similar logic, which is to identify particular political ex uh, perspectives as being extremist and applying the same methodology in terms of their uh, repression, I suppose. But certainly in Australia, the, the groundwork has been laid for the um, uh, criminalisation and the, I guess, what would you call it, terrorisation of uh, climate change activists. That's That's been going on for some years. And I think intimately connected to the fact that uh, the coal industry and uh, extractive industries play such a continue to play such an important role in the Australian economy. Yeah, I, I, I think that's absolutely correct. I don't think there is a, a, a carceral solution probably to racist right-wing extremist movements. I think that young men in particular get pulled into these movements for the same, for similar reasons that people get pulled into cults or, you know, other kind of exploitative extremist positions, I guess. And so, you know, there are probably other solutions available to that but but yeah what it's really about in effect look look i don't think I, I i doubt that reddit is is sort of making these kinds of calculations about placing a particular limit generally across the, the society or the culture on on free speech i think they're making pragmatic decisions and it's possible that they're just they're really wanting to get rid of a whole bunch of racist and and far-right subreddits but but you know they want to kind of look even-handed at the beginning of that purge you know it could be something as pragmatic and, and and kind of dumb as that but yeah i mean there is a there is a danger in a moment where extremism is a thing that's being cracked down on not racism uh, not the promotion of violence against against marginal communities not you know the profession of a belief in a genocidal ideology but just whatever x standard standard deviations from the centre of politics. I, I don't think that's the thing we should be worried about, and I don't think that's the thing we should be criminalising. What we should be doing is consistently enforcing and being vigilant for, you know, acts of political violence against, against uh, uh, communities who don't necessarily have a great deal of capacity to, to participate in the political process as it stands. I mean, look, look at the empirical data there, you know, left wing terrorism, even as the government defines it, even as the Federal Bureau of Investigation and the Department of Justice defines it, has really been negligible for the last decade, increasingly negligible. There have been almost no acts of political violence, let alone sustained political violence perpetrated by, you know, the political left in the United States, almost all of the political violence in the United States has been perpetrated by the far right. And, and you know, if you bracket 9-11, which was obviously an awful mass casualty event, it's all, the majority rather, is, is, is white supremacist extremists. And, you know, uh, in saying that, I'm not, I'm not arguing that, um, uh, you know, that uh, jihadi extremists are a left-wing movement, far from it. Um, but yeah, I mean that—that's—that's that's where we're at. I think the problem is that just as law enforcement is being forced to acknowledge that it's being absorbed into this discourse of counterterrorism, and you know, I don't know what—I I can't pretend to know what the Biden administration will do in terms of foreign policy. But it seems to me that the war, 
the war in Afghanistan is lost. And, you know, at some point, some president is going to say, let's just pull out of there. And then there's going to be this whole apparatus that's been built up through throughout the war on terror that's going to have no object, you know, no, no nothing to nothing to orient it, itself towards. And I, I fear that's what's being done at the moment with far right extremism. And and I think that uh, and 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 various experts I've I've spoken to have told me this that that can probably mostly be dealt with within the framework of existing laws if if law enforcement agencies take it seriously. Speaking of people who are a threat to our communities, uh, Andy Ngo recently testified before Congress about Antifa. What did you make of that? So I, I, I must confess that um, uh, I, I did not watch it and, and that that was kind of deliberate. I saw the whole move of... So, so the hearing that uh, Andy spoke before was... A hearing for the from the oversight committee in Congress into specifically into police violence against journalists and the the First Amendment threat that police were posing and so I thought that the the minority on that committee the Republicans were really um, you know stretching the whole nature of the inquiry to, to to kind of bring Andy in and essentially as I understand it he was brought in to say that Antifa were an equivalent. First Amendment threat to the police. I, I, I'm just going to ignore his testimony, if you don't mind, and just reiterate the idea, I think, that there's an increasingly desperate resort at the moment from the right to familiar bogeymen, I guess, familiar, you know, scare narratives. So, so the red scare, the immigrant scare, you know, I mean, they're going to try everything on in the lead up to this November election, bringing Andy in to discuss Antifa. I, I mean, the, the comparison between the journalists Antifa have injured and the journalists that the police have injured is 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 probably the one you want to look at at this point. And, you know, over the last couple of months, police have been deliberately targeting journalists. I don't think that's, I think that's incontrovertible at this point, um, you know, if you look at the evidence. So I, I don't think I want to engage with that Distraction. I, I I just want to say that police uh, and the police unions are part of the political right in this country, uh, and like every part of the political right in this country, they're desperately trying every tactic in their books to avoid accountability from the accountability that is embodied in police reform to the accountability that is embodied in elections. And I I I don't think it's working anymore. And I think that you know inviting the testimony of Andy No at an oversight committee hearing is an indication of how 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 badly they are faring at the moment. I'll leave it at that. They're not uh, sending us their best, are they, Jason? They are not. And um, I don't want to sound too bullish. I don't want to sound too confident in my predictions about what's going to happen in this country over the next year because I don't. I think whichever way it shakes out, it's going to it's going to be dangerous and and awful and. Um, we're not going to be through the coronavirus epidemic by November. Things could break either way at any moment. But so the guy's name is Osita Nwanavu. He writes for the New Republic. Uh, and the article he wrote is called The Disappearing Backlash to Black Lives Matter. And, and the point he makes, you know, he looks at polling data and 
and shows that there's been, uh, I think this was widely reported, there's been this enormous increase in, in, in sort of favorability according to public opinion polling um, with respect to Black Lives Matter. And, you know, um, he's usually a fairly pessimistic writer. I mean, he's a, a, a man of color, a, a black guy, uh, and he's, you know, um, usually pretty pessimistic when it comes to American politics for understandable reasons. But he he kind of looks at the crowds in the streets and looks at the polling and and kind of, you know, at least provisionally says that this looks like a kind of backlash to extremist politics, but not the ex- not not like 1968, not a backlash to to left wing extremism, but a backlash to right wing extremism. You know, when you look at the people protesting in little towns, when you look at the the size of the crowds, when you look at even police departments saying, "Well, you know, you've got a point. <laughs> can, can we negotiate?" He says the passage, the key passage is: "In short, America is already in the middle of a broad and electorally significant cultural backlash against rad- radical politics." But it's a backlash against the right, not the left. And, you know, you've seen the Supreme Court in the last month, you know, strike down a challenge to abortion, you know, affirm that trans people have rights at work, that, that trans people's rights at work, uh, you know, Trump, as it were, the, 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 the religious beliefs of their employers. You've had them say that uh, Donald Trump's executive order on dreamers is not, is not, you know, valid. It doesn't stand up in court. I mean, You've had the Joint Chiefs of Staff kind of say that, uh, Mr. President, we're not going to obey an illegal order. There, there's a kind of, and, and, and all of this is being led by the people in the streets. I don't want to, I don't want to say that the upper echelons of, of important national institutions are the prime movers here. They're not. And they're, they're responding to what's going on in the streets and they're making their bets, I think, about who has momentum at the moment. I think that that is going to play out not only up until the election, but, but afterwards. And that, that really, you know, that is the product of not only the period of the Trump administration, which as Andy said earlier is, is, is just really the most vulgar expression of a lot of things that have been in the air for a while. It's, it's a kind of pent up reaction to, to 30 or 40 years of this stuff. And I think also. You know, that, that for better or worse, a lot of working people have lost their jobs. And for the first time in a long time in the United States, people can't work three jobs just to make ends meet, even if they want to or need to. And they have time. They have time to, you know, think about what's going on. You know, they have time to talk to people about politics. They have time to get out there in the street. And as soon as they had the time to do that, they suddenly... They were part of a steamroller that I think has rolled over this presidency. I, I don't see how he claws it back from here. I don't. I, I don't think it's going to be even close enough to steal. If if, if you know what I'm saying, uh, I, I, it, it, you know, it would have to be a really egregious crime at this point. If the if these polls are anything like accurate, and if they don't improve for him in an unprecedentedly positive way. I, I, I think he's 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 kind of done. But like like I've been saying, that just means we're at the end of the beginning, probably, um, in, in terms of working out what the future of this country is going to look like. I have noticed recently that there's been expressions of, well, increasingly voluble expressions of discomfort from among the QAnon cult 
towards the Trump regime and uh, their faith is being increasingly tested as time progresses and there's not a wave of arrests of, you know, uh, pedophiles and whatever other uh, craziness has been preoccupying their minds and it seems that even among those who are or have been the most dedicated of his followers over the past few years, even they are beginning to um, express doubt and uh, it's it's just the chasm that exists between his promises or their fantasies about what the Trump regime promised and what it's actually delivered has become almost unbridgeable for many. And it seems like for some, at least, that means moving away from those uh, ideas, perhaps. But for others, it's, a, you know, an opportunity for them to redouble their commitment, which I think is obviously whatever happens. It's in those circumstances that you're more likely to witness violent outbreaks of some sort, I suppose. Yeah, I, I, I think that's right. I mean, the, the latitude for passivity in American politics, I think, is much greater than in Australia. I mean, you, you can just disengage and stay home. Lots of people do that every election. But, but, but even if you have in the past been a committed supporter of the president, you can, you know, you can even lie to pollsters if you want. You know, on the crucial day, you can, you can stay home. I think that Trump has been mobilising people against him for most of the last four years, but 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 he stepped that up in the last couple of months. I, I don't see what's mobilising people in his favour, um, or or, or mobilising people in his favour who who were not already so mobilised. So in other words, he's not. I don't I don't see that there's a way for him to attract new voters. And yeah, while that's going on, you know, the polling is telling us that uh, evangelicals are softening. You know, as you say, observationally, you can see that QAnon people are going, well, what's going on here? I mean, and if you take QAnon people as the kind of limit case, I mean, I think the big picture is that, or the big question is that what has Donald Trump actually delivered to the various constituencies that voted him in, he doesn't. He hasn't built a wall, or n- not really beyond the wall that was already there. He certainly hasn't built a wall from from coast to coast. He has appointed uh, a lot of judges. That's true. But what have those judges delivered? You know, the Supreme Court judges in particular delivered to those core constituencies who were, I think, expecting the rollback of same-sex marriage, and we're expecting Roe versus Wade maybe would get overturned. And we're certainly expecting that a, an executive order from the president you know, banning Muslims would, would, would sort of have some kind of effect, uh, because that's one of the few things that he's done that is sufficiently de- decisive, uh, uh, you know, is decisive enough to appeal to the more action-oriented parts of his base, let's put it that way. I just don't know what he's delivered. I don't know how he, he gets new voters. He certainly lost a lot of voters. And so, you know, it's going to be interesting for the remainder of the year because I think at some point Trump or the people around him are going to realise that he can't win. And, and so kind of what do you do from there? Yeah, he might pull an October surprise and uh, bring all the mole children up from the tunnels. Yeah, that that's possible. You know, the tunnels are full. The mole children are registered to vote, so... Well, we might leave it there. Thanks very much for joining us, Jason. Thank you. And uh, always a pleasure, as I said at the top. 
up the gulf.